Hey there, everybody. This is the NPC Graveyard. I'm the NPC, and today we are going back to the graveyard with Channel Zero, the No End House. So I'm now two out of the four seasons in the box that I bought. So far, No End House is my favorite of the two. Also, I got a carrier pigeon from Hey There Joey saying that he was sick. But to my longtime listener, I hope you're feeling better. And to everyone else, while we're on the subject, if you do decide to go and send pigeon mail, please be sure to train them on how to go home. Ugh, I got a studio full of molting burps. Anyway, major spoilers to follow since I'll be doing the whole season instead of half of it. Trigger warning for suicide, animal abuse, and self-harm. Here we go. Channel Zero, No End House, begins with an overview of a serene cookie-cutter neighborhood. All is clean and serene, until we find a panicked girl hiding between houses. She spots the No End House and makes a break for it. A man comes sprinting out of, the, out of a house to tackle her to the ground before she can get inside. We see an overhead shot of the words, This isn't real, carved into her arm before the man takes out either a knife or a lighter saying how he would fix her right up. We open back up with our actual cast of characters. Margot, the main character, reluctantly agrees to go out to a party with two of her childhood friends, Jules, who is visiting from college, and JT, who the show really doesn't seem to care about. They all receive a weird video message on their phones advertising something called the No End House. A random stranger named Seth tells them that it's a type of urban legend haunted house attraction, while instantly connecting with Margot. The four decide to visit, finding the location, which happens once a year all around the world for a week before closing up shop and disappearing like it was never there at all. An exciting crowd waits for their group's turn to go inside buzzing about various rumors they've heard. And occasionally we see a few people limping out, vomiting, and looking like they've been through hell. Seth tells their small group how the house is able to change depending on each person. Which should be a red flag to these motherfuckers that this isn't just an attraction. And I paraphrase. People can leave after any room, but those who make it till the end are never heard from again. They go through a series of six rooms, each more terrifying than the last, until they finally exit the back of the house, drained, but alive. The four travel home to find that the layout of their neighborhood has changed, and that their homes are inhabited by people they long to see, but shouldn't really be there. All at once, but a little too late, they realize that they're still trapped in room six. So what I'm enjoying about Channel Zero as a whole so far is that each season is only six episodes long. It's enough time to set the story without really overstaying its welcome. I watched one season of American Horror Story and it felt like it was just dragging its feet at times. To be honest, 
No House probably could have told the same story in only three or four episodes, but I can see why they added the extra little story arc at the end of it. Now, if you haven't guessed yet, I enjoyed the first half of this series more than the second. By that time, we start to realize what's going on. And really, once you see the monster in full light, it's never quite as scary anymore. I enjoy the idea of a house that just pops up, calls out to random people, and then they show up without questioning anything. The YOLO philosophy, as Rose calls it. I know people can get crazy for extreme haunted houses, and just as much for internet legends. So the house sets the stage for itself pretty well in that regard. The house, well, whatever it really is, takes people in, literally daring them to keep moving forward, despite showing them their worst fears imaginable. They become trapped, inside it, by the sixth room, after presumably leaving through the back door. That is the part that I love. No one would want to go anywhere near the house again once they've exited. But the only way to go back to the real world is through the house once more. It's statistically brilliant. Like a Saw game where someone is literally handed the key, but in a way that they would never want to use. The door that leads to the very first room has a large message. Beware the cannibals. Which, again, is a misleading warning that turns out to be obvious. Before they even begin, they are given a clue to the horror of room 6. And that is the thing that they really want the most will quite literally eat them until they've hollowed out. Each person's utmost desire is manifested physically, in a house with unlimited food and seemingly every other creature comfort that they would want. The big problem, one that seems almost non-existent at first, is that the desires cannot taste any food whatsoever. The perfect world comes crashing down when they find out why they cannot taste anything. It's because they actually feed on memories to nourish the house. We're not sure what's happening at first. Margot is having a dream of her mother, whose form comes out of a black puddle in front of her desire, which has taken the form of her late father. He begins to take her mother apart, eating the red berry contents just underneath her skin. And the next day, Margot's mother becomes a blacked out blur. The house really does have a near-perfect Venus flytrap design, especially for those with regrets. Imagine, listener, not stopping to randomly remember something stupid you said eight years ago. Sounds great, right? Well, for Jewel's entire visit, and for Seth when he first entered the house, that's just what they do. Feed their desire nothing but all of their sad memories, their regrets, and their frustrations. For Jules, it almost becomes something like a drug. She keeps looking back to her desire, sometimes stopping in the middle of a thought to turn towards her house's house. Does that make sense? The house in her house? Within the house? Of the no-end house? Anyways, 
My favorite moment of the season is when two of the characters actually escape the house. Like, for real. Two guys are hanging out on the front door, pounding on it because they want to get inside. The one girl says, it's full. And a guy responds, there's nobody here. And then the girl shouts, I meant it's not hungry anymore. That, listeners, is dark humor right to the gut. Also a statement about how hard it is to discourage people to do something that the internet says is cool. One person revisiting the house on a rescue operation warned an entire group to leave, but no one did. They just got more excited. And it shows just how much of a toll the entire experience can take on someone. Because anyone who staggered out didn't give any kind of warning. They were all too shell-shocked to even crack a smile at being back in reality. But really, what is a better deterrent from doing something? A warning not to do it, or seeing the miserable results? My other favorite moment was when Margot was in her third room of the house. The house had split up the group so that they could face each of their individual nightmares. And Margot had to face one that had been scaring her since she was a child. Trapped in a dark hallway, near the end is an antique mirror, except a hand appears to grip it from the side. And we have a man hiding behind it, cackling louder and louder as she approaches the only exit. It was magnificent. I could have honestly watched a few groups growing through the house like that without ever getting bored. And now here's my one big complaint. The ending was pretty lethargic. This poor kid missed her dad so much that she was willing to give away every other memory for more time with him. Margaret decided to leave the house with her fake father and Seth, who became her in-house boyfriend. A year passes like this, and it starts eating Margot's dad up that he's basically been killing her. He finally resolves, after a year of parasitic compromise, to commit suicide to make sure she can't stop her from escaping. To make sure he can't stop her from escaping. It's kind of beautiful, since he's literally prepping for it while having a conversation with jerk-off Seth that the house would be better off dead. It shows how human memory can be, choosing not to exist so that his daughter can live. Seth was also a big problem. He said that there was a way to live inside the house, but he didn't mention that he had caged up his desire so that he wouldn't suffer any negative effects from the stillness in time. He became like a fish stuck to the fin of a shark, eating the dirt off its fins in exchange for not being eaten. He even goes as far as to lure people into the house during its yearly feeding to help keep it alive. Now I can see why a bounced around foster kid would want to stay in the one house that he was able to control. But I almost cheered when I saw him die. The house literally had to build a little cul-de-sac for all the girls that he fell in love with but allowed to be hollowed out. Like I said before, I could have enjoyed watching this season with the last two episodes cut short, but it's still a little better than Candle Cove. Ironically, I would also give the Candle Cove show a higher review than the season itself, 
but alas, that will probably never come to air. We still have Butcher's Block and the Dream Door to go through before I'm completely caught up. Will the series continue to get better, or will things start to drop? We'll find out. Well, sooner or later. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening, beware the cannibals, and welcome to the graveyard.